The Wiz Kids had won it, Bobby Thompson had done it, and Yogi read the comics all the while. Rock and roll was being born, marijuana we would scorn. So down on the corner, the national pastime went on trial. We're talking baseball, Klazuski, Campanella, talking baseball. All right, everybody, welcome on back to Baseball History 101. I'm Patrick DeVault here with Matthew Carter. Hello. Um, today we're going to cover a topic that one of our listeners requested. A guy that I played high school baseball with, Ian Tabor, requested this topic. It's going to be the uh, the Iron Man streak, which Cal Ripken took over from Lou Gehrig. Mm-hmm. And I reckon we ought to start with Lou Gehrig. Yep. Uh, he was born in 1903, and... He played 17 seasons for the Yankees from 23 to 39. Great hitter, great durability, which gave him the name the Iron Horse. So I'm going to let Matthew take it over from here. Yeah, so he was born in 1903, New York City. He was one of four kid, one of four children. However, all three of the of his siblings died young. So he was the only one that lived past adulthood, which, yeah, I mean, it, that's how it was. There was a lot, that was more common back then, you know. But um, he played baseball in New York. They lived in the Washington Heights neighborhood of Manhattan. And if you are a hardcore Yankees historian, you would know that Washington Heights neighborhood was where the New York Highlanders played at Hilltop Park, which is, I'm sure we know, the Highlanders later became the Yankees. So the origins of the Yankees was in Hilltop Park. That's where they played in Washington Heights. So they played, so they lived there, and then, you know, he started playing in high school. I can't remember his team. The high school team was very good, and then, I think it was called Commerce High School in New York or something around the line. And, of course, I'm looking on Wikipedia. In 1920, his high school played in, it wasn't called Wrigley Field then, it was called Cubs Park. And they played Lane Tech High School, which was a big, that, that was Chicago's, a high school in Chicago, which was very good at baseball. And he got noticed. I think some scouts noticed him there. Yeah, they were playing in front of 10,000 people that day. Yeah, at, you know, at a major league park. <laughs> and he caught the eye. Of some scouts. And they, they put one onto uh, Waveland Avenue, and yeah. scouts were like, oh, damn. yeah, this guy got a little pop. Yeah. And so he graduated from Commerce in 1921, and he enrolls at Columbia University. He's getting that Ivy League education. And he played not uh, – he, actually, he he got to Columbia on a football scholarship. Yeah, and he didn't want to play. He didn't really want to play football. Baseball was a sport, but – I mean, I guess he played football in high school, but baseball was his thing. That was his best sport, his favorite sport. And he got to play, but, so this is interesting. Before his first semester of school began, Sean McGraw of the New York Giants advised him to play summer professional baseball under an assumed name, which was Henry Lewis, which that's his... Americanized version of his real name because he was born Heinrich Ludwig Gehrig and but the American version is Henry Lewis you know 
even though he was born in America, usually they do that for immigrants who come to America. But they, they do that for, I guess, for an American for whatever reason. But anyway, I'm sorry. New York, uh, Giant, John McGraw. Well, back in that time, baseball was a little more racist, too. So that might have something to do with it. True. And, of course, you know, after World War One, when we fought the Germans, anti-German sentiment was big back then. Yeah, that's definitely got to be what's going on. There. I mean, that's why Coleman, Alabama used to have a German-speaking newspaper. And then after World War One, that stopped. <laughs> you know? I didn't realize that. Because Coma was founded by a German, it was like a German colony in Alabama. Anyway, but that that's another story for another time. But uh, anyway, so John McGraw's like, hey, you know, you should play summer baseball under a professional under a different name. Lots of people did that. Like, if you were in school and you wanted to play sports to make money outside of that, you played under an assumed name. That was a lot common back then. You don't do that now, but that was a lot common back then. So he played in the Eastern League. He played a couple of games in 1922 in the Eastern League for the Hartford Senators in Hartford, Connecticut. Now that is the in he got discovered and like they banned I guess Columbia banned him from playing sports his freshman year. But he came back the next year. Actually it was in twenty one he did that. In twenty two he came back the next year as a fullback for the Lions. The, the Columbia Lions and then he played first base for the Columbia baseball team and he was also the member of Phi Delta Theta fraternity and I you know I have some friends who were Phi Delta Theta so you know that's pretty cool if we have any Phi Delta Theta listeners and they didn't know that Lou Gehrig was a member they know that now Phi 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 yeah no that's a different fraternity that's my fraternity yeah <laughs> and so that was a pike so that's my fraternity yeah so fun so in night on April eighteenth, nineteen twenty three, which was the same day the Yankee Stadium opened, Lou Gehrig was a pitcher on the team as well as first baseman. And that day he struck out seventeen batters, Williams College batters, that set a team record, even though Columbia lost the game. <laughs> and Babe Ruth hit a dinger. Yeah, Babe Ruth hit a home run that day at Yankee Stadium while Lou Gehrig struck out seventeen guys and lost the house that Ruth built. And lost the game. <laughs> that doesn't happen very often. But, you know, this is college baseball. And so he was discovered by Yankee scout Paul Critchell. And he's been, you know, he has been trailing. Well, he was discovered by Critchell, not at the game. He, he's been, Critchell was following him for most of the his college career. But he was at that game. And he was like, you know, his pitching didn't impress Critchell, but his power hitting did. And Critchell eventually convinced him to play, you know, to sign with the Yankees. And he didn't want to do it originally. His parents didn't want to do it because he's like, hey, you're getting this education, you know, all that. But the money was just too good to pass up. And so he left Columbia after his sophomore year in 1923. And he does play for the Yankees in 23-24, but he also played part seasons with the Hartford Senators. Again, that is the only minor league team that he ever played for was the Hartford Senators. You know, when people think of Hartford baseball, they think, at least historically, they'll think Lou Gehrig, you know. And so he plays for 23 24. You know, he's a good backup. Uh, so his debut, his major league debut, was on June 15, 1923, at age 19. He wasn't 20 yet. His birthday was like four days later. 
uh, and he was behind Wally Pip, who was the starter at first base, and he was a pretty good hitter in the dead ball era. But you know, let's see. I think he only played he only played twenty three games in, in nineteen twenty three, and he wasn't on the nineteen twenty three roster when the, the World Series roster when the Yankees won the World Series that year, which was their first. Even though he was hitting four twenty three, you're like, yeah, he's yeah. In twenty in twenty three games, he hit four twenty three. That's pretty damn good. Well, it's going to kind of all come back to his defensive liability, right? Now. 1920, so 24 hits like 500. I don't know how many games. We'll have to look it up on Baseball Reference, but he hits 500 in 1924, which, again, is good. Now, June 1st, 1925, was the day that Lou Gehrig started his first, started the streak of consecutive games. Now, the story goes, if you watch Ken Burns Baseball. Well, can we pause here? Yeah. I very highly recommend that everybody goes and watch that. Yeah. My second cousin actually did all the music for that, which is awesome. But um, Bobby it, Horton? Yeah, that's my second cousin. I love Bobby Horton, man. He plays great music. Three on a string, great band. Yeah. Great group. Great group. Go see their dinner show if you have time. Bobby Horton's my second cousin. My grandmother's maiden name is Horton. I also like his Civil War music, but I don't want to really discuss that because somebody would, you know. We'll get canceled if we talk about that. <laughs> right. But well, <laughs> uh, um, if you have the time, go watch Ken Burns Baseball. Right. And so, in the, in the 1920s, sorry, in the 1920s episode, they talk about June 1st, Wally Pip is at batting practice. And, he, and the story goes that he gets hit in the head in batting practice and that takes him out of the lineup. And Lou gets into the game. You know, he starts for Wally Pip. Now, if you read Wikipedia, it doesn't mention this story. It basically says, taking over a for a slumping pip partway into the 1925 season. So, I, he probably was slumping. He may have been hit in the head. But, again, this could be baseball lore. You know, we'll have to look it up. I mean, either way, Wally Pip just wasn't performing. Or something happened to Wally Pip. And, you know, Yankees manager Milton Huggins is like, all right, you're not performing. Or, well, you got hurt. So... Lou, you're getting in there. And from night from that day forward, he started at first base. He played every game from nineteen twenty five all the way to the end of his career in nineteen thirty nine. He really made a name for himself in nineteen twenty seven. Mm-hmm. Murderers Row. One of the Murderers Row which is funny because I'm looking at Braves tickets right now and they're so expensive. They're gonna drop the rest of them tomorrow morning by the time this comes up. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I'm not paying Eight hundred dollars for a Braves ticket. Not even if they were playing the Murderers Row. That's what I told my grandmother yesterday. <laughs> but in, in twenty seven, he put up together one of the greatest seasons by any batter in the history of Major League Baseball. Three seventy three, two hundred and eighteen hits, which were comprised of one hundred one singles, fifty two doubles, eighteen triples, forty seven dingers, mm-hmm. and at that time it was a record one hundred and seventy five RBIs. And there's been a few guys that have gotten over two hundred now, um, especially in the nineties in the steroid era. But, um, and he had a 765 slugging. And his 117 extra base hits that season are all time, still to this day, to Babe Ruth's 119 in 1921. Yeah. So he's, well, he's, you know, Babe Ruth is considered the icon of baseball. Yeah. He's not far behind. Right. I mean, but Lou Gehrig had to play second fiddle at Babe Ruth until he got traded to the Braves. And then 
in 36, Joe DiMaggio came, and it seemed like he got played second fiddle to Joe DiMaggio, too. But going back to the, the single-season RBIs, okay, so that his record was 175. In 1931, he topped that with 185 RBIs. However, he's, he's the all-time American League single-season RBI hold record, uh, RBI holder. All-time, it's Hack Wilson. He hit 191 RBIs in 1930. So, Lou Gehrig was like, you know, six RBI shy from reaching Hack Wilson. But, yeah. But the guy can make RBIs. Like, he, <laughs> no doubt about it. Get him on, get him over, get him in. Yep. And so, he's part of the 27 Yankees, right? We all know they're murderers row. They won 110 games, you know, six behind the 1906 Cubs and the 2001 Mariners. Most of that lineup is you know, Hall of Famers now. Right. Like, you had Babe Ruth, Gehrig, obviously, Tony Lazari, uh, pitchers like Wade Hoyt. Uh, uh, oh, Earl Coombs, he's in the Hall of Fame. He played outfield. And he had guys like uh, Joe Dugan and, you know, I mean, Benny Mingau. I mean, you all these guys, and they, just, and they all could hit. You know, there, there was very – you didn't have a lot of bad uh, – Bad uh, batters in that lineup. You know? As a pitcher, I'm good. Yeah, like Wade Hoyt, you know. The main reason that Wade Hoyt's in the Hall of Fame is because he pitched for the Yankees in the 20s and he had all that offense helping him out and <laughs> bailing him out of games. <laughs> Great pitcher, but, you know, the Yankees helped him out a lot. The main reason he's in the Hall of Fame is because of his Yankees career. But anyway, he, you know, they and then they sweep the Pirates, which we talked about in the last episode with the Wainers. They sweep the Pirates in four games. You know, Lou Gehrig kicks ass. Love how it comes full circle. Yeah. You know, and but of course, 27, you know, even though Gehrig had a monster coming out year, he gets overshadowed by Babe Ruth's 60 home runs that year, which, you know. <laughs> you know, it's very easy to get overshadowed by 60 home runs, even in today's game of baseball. Right. Like, like, we're going to talk about it in the in a future episode, but King Griffey Jr. hit 56 home runs in 98. He gets overshadowed by McGuire and Sosa hitting 70 and 66. So, you know, <laughs> you know. But, uh, but it seemed like, oh, in 27 they go, and okay, so after the World Series, the, besides the vaudeville thing, they go on a barnstorming tour. Roof and Garrett did. And they go out to the West Coast, and this is where, you know, Babe Ruth's team was the Bustin' Babes, and Lou's team was the Larrapin' Lou's. And, like, you know, they, they wore these uniforms. You can, you can find photos of this online. They wore these uniforms, and that's how they just played each other. And I guess they had, I, I had to go look into this, but they had, like, you know, lots of other players that played on their teams. I guess their teammates. We'll have to look. There's a book about it. About that Jane Levy wrote, which I guess it's kind of a biography on Ruth, but it's more like the premise of it is mostly just about this 27 barnstorming tour. And Matt, correct me if I'm wrong, a barnstorming tour used to be a thing in baseball back in the day. Right. Um, they'd go to these little small towns and they'd play, you know, not really like Field of Dreams games, they'd play at the little small local parks and they'd mm -hmm. try and drum up fandom and revenue for their big clubs. Yeah. And build fan base, people that wanted to buy their jerseys or T-shirts or whatever, and that's what a barnstorming tour was. Yeah, and for it was those a, of you at home that don't 
Right. No, not many people today know the, tor- the term barnstorming like Patrick and I do. And it was a great way for players to make some money after the season. Right? You And, you know... A little pocket money because they weren't paid the way they are now. Right. I mean, that's something that I... That you you never see today. You don't see players going on barnstorming tours, you know. I ain't gonna see Mike Trout playing my men's league, you know. Right now in 2020. Now next year, a summer collegiate league team called Savannah Bananas. I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, they're going on what I consider to be a modern day barnstorming tour, right? Usually summer collegiate league they go June, July, August. They're I, I guess they got some former players. I don't know what, who makes the lineup, but they're getting a team. They're they're doing the team. They're going on a tour through the southeast, and they're going to play like Montgomery and Birmingham. They're going to play Rickwood Field, and they're going to play West Palm Beach, Florida, Daytona Beach, and Columbus, Georgia. They did a similar thing this past season. The guy I played with the day you win lives in Mobile and got to pitch for them. Yes, at, um, this past year. Yeah, so I think at least with that game, it was the Savannah Bananas and their. Their alternate team, the Savannah Party Animals. That's their, I guess, their touring team. Kind of like the Harlem Globetrotters and the Washington Generals are always going to be their opponent, you know. I'm just waiting for the Generals to win again. Right. <laughs> but, all right, so, got off the subject there about the bananas. But, yeah, so barnstorming is like you go out after the season, you get you know, your friends well, your players, whether it be your teammates or minor league players or even semi-pro players, you get a team together, you go out, and you go play for a couple days. Now, sometimes, at least in the early 1900s to the 20s, actual teams, like actual major league teams like the Pirates and the Reds would go out and go play, you know, actual exhibition games, like barnstorming games. But as time progressed, it became like a mishmash of, all-star teams made up of major and minor and semi-pro players. And so that was the case with the Bustin Babes and Larrapin Lose. They got a bunch of guys together, and they went on this epic, you know, coast-to-coast tour <laughs> and played baseball for the fans, you know. And we should look this up because, as I mentioned before, Jane Levy wrote a book about... I guess it's mostly about the Barnstorming tour. But it also kind of doubles as a Babe Ruth biography, which honestly, Babe Ruth has said so many books. There's been so many biographies written about Babe Ruth. Do we need another Babe Ruth biography? I'm sorry. <laughs> you know. No offense to Babe Ruth. I'm not convinced he's the best player to play baseball like he is made out to be. There's many, yeah. But was he great for his time period? Absolutely. Absolutely. But I'm not sure if he should be the gold standard. Yeah. Let me see. And I'm sure that's going to be a controversial opinion. Yeah. I think they also toured in 1928 as well as the Bustin' Babes and Larry Blues. Because I remember they were at Dexter Park in Brooklyn, where the Brooklyn Bushwicks, a at the time a very famous semi-pro team, played. And they were, I think it's on, it's also on the uh, Kimbirds baseball. There's brief footage of them, and they're at Dexter Park. And they're wearing their, I think Lou Gehrig was wearing his Larry and Lou's outfit, and Babe Ruth was in like a cowboy outfit, and they're on a car. And he's on a car, and Babe Ruth's like, there's some bullhorns on the car, and Babe Ruth's like, you know, tugging the bullhorns, pretending like he's on a rodeo. 
on this car. It was so weird, but like they were at Dexter Park doing that. But you know, busting babes and laughing lose, and then also one of the when it was a game uh, compilations of home footage from of home footage of baseball games from like the thirties, twenties, thirties, forties, fifties. I think it was when it was a game two. They showed uh, Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig in their Bustin' Babe and Larry and Lou out, uh, uniforms. You know, not at a game, but like at some picnic or something. And like Lou Gehrig's holding a kid in his Larry and Lou's outfit, you know. I mean, uniform. You know, it's just really fascinating that there's footage of this. And I think somebody actually wrote a book about, other than Jane Levy, somebody else wrote about, you know, the Bustin' Babes and Larry Blues called Barnstormer Across America, The Bustin' Babes and Larry Blues by Rick Cabral. So somebody also wrote about that that's not a, that not doubles as a Babe Ruth biography. So if you want to check that out, that's fine. You know, that'd be something to read. But, you know, anyway, <laughs> Barnstorming was a thing. Babe Ruth Ludier did that a bunch, just like a lot of people, you know. So anyway, <laughs> I'm sorry, guys. We're, we're going off our story. Uh, you know, 1928, you know, Yerick has another great year, and the Yankees once again won the World Series. Four straight against the Cardinals. Sorry, Patrick. You know. <laughs> you know. And then, you know, 29, 30, 31, they're not in the World Series. But Lou Gehrig, you know, hits 100, score, you know, has 185 RBIs. You know, as we mentioned. Um, 29, 30, 31. He was the, um, in nine, he didn't lead the league in any categories in 29. In 1930, he led the league in games played and plate appearances. Mm-hmm. 154 games played, 103 plate appearances. 31, 738 plate appearances. Led the league in runs at 163. Led the league in hits at 211. Home runs at 46 and ribbies at 185. And his uh, total bases, he also led the league in at 410. Yeah, he just dominated 1931. Offensive powerhouse. Absolutely. And then in 32, which we're about to get into, uh, 156 games played, led the league again. Yep. And that was the year that Lou Gehrig hit four home runs in a single game. June 3rd, 1932 at Scheib Park. As we, I kind of mentioned in the second Connie Mack uh, episode. He hits four home runs in a game. He's the first person in the 20th century to do that, and the second person in Major League history to do that. First one was Bobby Lowe in 1894 or something like that. Maybe it was in the 1890s. And right afterwards, we'll have to find the picture, but there's a picture of Lou Gehrig and Bobby Lowe together. Bobby Lowe's an old guy. Lou Gehrig's got his, like, Lou Gehrig's on the left, and he's got his arm around Bobby Lowe. And he's got the you know close up smile on his face like yeah, and Bobby Lowe's there in his ancient 1890s Boston Bean Eaters uniform, and it's a nice little photo. You know if you ever see that photo, it's a nice little photo. If I can find the pic, if I can find the photo, I'll try and make it the uh, cover photo for this episode. Yeah, because it's great, man. It's a great photo. But you know that's like I said, like that's something Babe Ruth never did was hit four home runs in a game. That's still a hard feat to do. A, one, a recent four home run game 
was by former Huntsville star Scooter Jeanette when he did it with the Reds in 2017. Yeah, the last one in the river. Yeah, and I couldn't believe that because Scooter was a, such a skinny. He's a he was scrawny a, second baseman. Yeah, and he had four home runs, and I thought, well, that's awesome, man. But anyway, like I said, four home runs is a hard in a game is a hard accomplishment to do, and Lou Gehrig pulled it off. And Chai Park is a deep park. What I'm sorry, was a deep park, right? They don't build parks like that anymore. They're more cookie cutter diameters, yeah. dimensions, not diameters, dimensions. I mean, um, he had to earn it. He he had to hit that thing out of there to earn it. And the sad thing was, even though that was a great accomplishment, that got few headlines the next day because also on June third, nineteen thirty two, was when John McGraw announced that he was going to retire. Let me backtrack one second. Oh, so yeah. In 1932, when he hit four home runs in that game, it was against the Philadelphia Athletics, which backtracks us to old Connie Mack. Yep, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> and he barely missed his fifth one when Al Simmons pulled one back on his ass. There you go. Oh, Al. <laughs> but, yeah, so, like I said, you know, that's a – that's a hard accomplishment to do, and Lou Gehrig pulled it off. Like I said, he did something that Babe Ruth couldn't have done, didn't do, you know. And so, like I said, and then like, you know, it also mentioned in uh, Ken Burns Baseball in the 30s that it got a few headlines because John McGraw said he announced he was going to retire, which that's a big deal. That was a big deal, too. <laughs> anyway, but so 33, so 32, they win the World, so they played the World Series. And they won four straight against the Cubs. The Cubs, you know, and that's the that's the series that Babe Ruth. Yep, <laughs> that's the series that Babe Ruth hit his cult shot. And that really happened, or is that just a myth? Honestly, you look at the photo that the the photo that they took. It looks like he's pointing to the dugout. It's kind of like I'm getting up at the plate and I'm doing this. Right. For those at home, I'm just kind of stretching, move my front arm around a little bit. Because the Cubs were, the Cubs were, you know, talking trash, which you know that's what people do. Oh, and you work in the Hall of Fame. You might have seen the real photo. Yeah. Okay. So. And. You know, he hits the shot, and of course, Lou Gehrig bats behind Babe Ruth, right? You know, when they did the numbers, when the Yankees did the numbers in 1929, they did it in batting order. So Babe Ruth is number three and Gehrig's number four. Gehrig's always clean up, right? And, you know, I think if at least if I can remember from Kim Burns baseball in the 30s when they talk about this, Lou Gehrig said something like, can you believe, something along the lines of, can you believe the nerve of that big monkey to hit the home run or something like that? I think, or big, he said the word monkey, but I don't know, or mate. And it doesn't sound politically correct today, but he said something around, this is one of those lines. We, you had to watch the video. You had to watch it to, you know, I'd have to watch it again to remember what he said. But it was something along those lines, like he was kind of annoyed that Babe Ruth called his shot. You know, and I think, I think Garrick outperformed Babe Ruth in the series. If I can remember correctly, and I'm going to, we're going to look it up again on, uh, Let's see, we'll go look up the 32 World Series because it was. I think he outperformed Babe Ruth in the series, and he was annoyed that all everybody could talk about was Ruth's home run. He may have been series MVP if they had that back then. Okay, so Gehrig in the 1932 World Series 
He had nine hits and 17 at-bats with a double, three home runs, eight RBIs. He only he walked twice and struck out once. And his batting average was 529 for the series. On-base percentage, 600. On, uh, slugging was 1.118. And altogether, the on-base plus slugging was 1.718. And 19 total bases. I mean, he just dominated that World Series. He outshone everybody. And yet, what anybody can remember from that 1932 World Series was Babe Ruth's called shot, which annoyed the heck out of Gehrig. It annoyed me too if I was knocking the cover off the baseball. That'd be like Eddie Rosario in this series right now going on, or that's about to go on, or yeah, just finished. In LCS, it'd be like him, somebody... It'd be like Freddie Freeman hit one in the upper deck, and like, oh, well, what about Freddie's home run? Man, I hit 15 hits this, 14 hits this series. Right. Yeah. <laughs> now, we need to talk about the streak somewhere because I've got a good starting point for that right now. Okay. Um, it starts in 1933. Um. All right, and then nine, then in 1933. Lou Gehrig played his 1,308th consecutive game, which came against the St. Louis Browns at Sportsman Park, and that made him the Iron Horse. Mm-hmm. That's when he became their times Iron Man. We're going to get into our Iron Man here in a minute. Yep. And that was at Sportsman's Park. Um, Everett Scott held that record, and Scott retired, was there as a guest of the game. Um, yep. So that was cool. And he lived, Lou Gehrig lived with his parents since 1933, which is a fun fact. Yeah, until um, he got married. He was 30 years old, and his mother ruined all of his romances until he met Eleanor Twitchell, <laughs> who died in um, 1984. But in 1932, they, they dated, and they got married in September. She was the daughter of the Chicago Parks Commissioner, Frank Twitchell. And she helped Gehrig leave his mother's influence and hired um, a lady named Charity, Charity Walsh. To be Lou's agent. Oh, Chris, Christy Walsh. Christy Walsh. Christy Walsh. Yeah. Yes. He, Christy Walsh was also Babe Ruth's agent, and he was technically, I guess people refer to him as the first sports agent. We can get into Christy Walsh another time, but he was. it was smart going with Christy Walsh because he got people, he got players deals like, you know. I apologize to his family. I called him a she. Yeah. Christy Walsh, which is a guy, you know, <laughs> he got. He's you know, credited with making Lou Gehrig the first man to ever be on a Wheaties box. Right. I mean, he got deals for players, most notably during World Series games. Uh, he probably did this with Gehrig too, but at least with Cobb and Ruth. He got players like who weren't in the World Series to write uh, ghost-written accounts of, this, of the series. So it's kind of like what Jeter's doing now with the Players' Tribune. Yeah, something like that. But they were ghostwriting. Right. Like, they would have actual... Writer, like sports writers, write the 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 articles, and they would just put the player's name on the front. Very rarely do the players actually like had any say in it, but it got them money. You know, Chrissy Walsh got these guys money because he, you know, he had. He's like, hey, you know, you guys can make money off your name, and you know, you don't have to get paid. You know, don't have to just rely on a salary from the big leagues. You know, you can like make your money out there. You know, and with that being said, you fast forward to nineteen thirty six. There was a um, World Series cover story in 1936 about Gehrig and Carl Hubble. And Time Magazine proclaimed that Lou Gehrig was the game's number one batsman. Yeah. 
Um, he takes boyish pride in banging a baseball as far and running around the bases as quickly as possible. But the thing is, he's a baseball player. Yeah. That's kind of what you're... That's what goal, you do, right? Yeah, I mean, that's that, kind of the goal. Yeah, and you know that was the year after Roof retired, so you know he didn't have Roof to, you know, be around anymore. <laughs> also that year, um, Roof had a new agent, and Garrick also hired that agent, who in turn persuaded him to audition for the role of Tarzan, the Ape Man. After Johnny Weissmuller had vacated that comedy role, <laughs> he only got this far though. As posing for a widely distributed and embarrassing photo of himself in a leopard-spotted costume. Yeah. I've when the Tarzan that. creator, Edgar Burroughs, saw it and said, I want to congratulate you on being a good first baseman, but you're not going to be in my movie. <laughs> <laughs> However, fast forward again, in 1938, he did star in a movie called Rawhide. And it's on YouTube. I've seen like an opening of it, and there's Lou Gehrig in a cowboy hat. Like, he's... I think at the beginning of the film, he's leaving New York to go out west, and he's at the train station. And he's talking to these guys, and it's a talk, you know, it's a talkie. You know, you can thirty eight. They had talkie talking films, so you can hear his voice, and it's really cool. So, anyway, I just had to throw that out there. He did have somewhat of a film career. <laughs> it's just funny that he was auditioning for this role, and the the guy that wrote it's like, eh. no, <laughs> have fun playing first base. You're good at that. Yeah. Oh, in 34, we, we forgot he won the Triple Crown. Which, you know, in the 30s, you could win the Triple Crown more frequently than you can do now. How many guys have won it overall? Uh, Gotta be, what, like 10 or 12-ish? At least. I mean... Not, not too many, though. No, like Lajway, Cobb, Hornsby twice, Ted Williams twice, Chuck Klein, uh, Jimmy Fox. Ducky Medwick was the last National Leaguer to do it. Uh, Frank Robinson, Carl Yastrzemski, Miguel Cabrera, Gehrig. There's not a lot, man. And we're going like the 20th century guys. 20, 20, 20th century. Alright, it's time to get into the 2130. Right. So, so the streak started. We're going to backtrack a little bit here to get into the streak. The yeah. streak started June 1st, 1925. He entered the game as a pinch hitter for Paul Pee Wee Wanager. Wanger. And the next day, Yankee manager started him in place of Wally Pitt, which you mentioned because Wally Pitt had a headache. He was in a slump and the team was struggling. And so he made mass substitutions that day. Yep. Uh, just just to try and see what happened. And that streak went on for 14 years until Lou Gehrig played 2,130 consecutive games. We already talked about him passing the 1307 along the way. During the streak, the sports writers in 1931, they named him the Iron Horse because he was rolling. Yeah. And there was multiple chances he was going to lose his streak. 1933, the Washington Senior pitcher Earl Whitehill smoked him in the back of the head, Ooh. almost knocked him out, but he didn't leave the game. Same year, June 14th, he was ejected from a game with Joe McCarthy, but he already played in the game and had an at-bat. Yep. Because the streak is contingent on and at bat. Yes. And then almost right out a year later, 1934 exhibition game, he was hit by a pitch just above the right A and he got knocked out. He was out for five minutes. Batting helmets, you know, it was kind of... There, eh, there were no batting back helmets then. in the 1930s. People had them, but it was up to you. You were wearing a thick hat, you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, 
He left the game. But he started the next day. Yep. July 13th, the same year, he suffered a lumbago attack. Lumbago. 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 Which is, um, it's a muscle, muscle spasm, pretty much, yeah. uh, from what I understand. And in the next day's away game, he was listed in the lineup as shortstop batting leadoff. And his first only play appearance, he singled, was probably replaced. Keeping <laughs> the streak alive, baby. Yeah. Um, in addition, the x-rays taken after that disclosed that he has sustained several fractures. And that's not only with that injury, but he had had several fractures throughout his career. Um, and then he played with the Yankees and general manager Ed Barrow postponed a game as a rainout on a day when Garrett was sick with the flu, knowing that he wasn't able to start, which <laughs> is the kicker. That wouldn't happen in a day's baseball because of TV rights and all of this. Yeah. And but there's no TV in 19... What, what year was this? This is uh, 1934. Yeah, there was no year. We're listening year. on AM radio. Right. And he won the Triple Crown that year. <laughs> you know. Oh, man. But you got... That GM, I'd play for him any day. Yeah. Hey man, I got a street going. I can't play. Ed, yeah. We'll Ed, make we'll turn the sprinklers on. Ed Barrow's in the Hall of Fame, you know. <laughs> uh, but yeah. So lots of close calls in thirty four, but he still manages to keep it going. And he really from what I've read leading into this, his wife Eleanor is really the one that convinced him to end his streak because she made him call in sick with the flu one day, even though he didn't have it. Yeah. Because she's like, dude, you put your body through enough. Like, why are we still doing this? Right. What are you trying to prove? He took himself out of the lineup in 1939. At, yep. At, at, in uh, Detroit. Yep. Because, well, but and, but then he went to, well, he went to the hospital. He went to the Mayo Clinic in, in Rochester, Minnesota, and then that's when they diagnosed him with ALS, which, you know, attacks your muscles. It's terrible. It's a terrible disease. But he's such a badass that the disease is named after him. Right. Yeah. But, you know, his, it brings awareness to the disease of having his name there. So he yeah. has to, you know, he can't, you know, it, he can't play anymore. That was 1938, correct? 30, well, 39. 1939 is when he took himself out of the lineup to end the streak. Yeah. Because he started feeling well towards the back end of that previous season and didn't have it coming in at 39. Right. And then 39, you know, it, spring training, he's just not himself. And then as the, as the season progressed, April. Back to, when the Yankees were in St. Pete every year. Yeah. Yep. They were in St. Petersburg every year. And then as the season progressed into April into early May, he just wasn't, wasn't himself. And he, you know, there in Detroit, I think it was May 2nd, there in Detroit, and he told Joe McCarthy, the manager, he said, I'm taking myself out of the lineup. I don't think I can play. I'm not I'm not 100%. I cannot contribute to the team. I'm taking myself out of the lineup. And from what I've read, there was multiple times where he was he had hit balls where he was running multiple bases and just fell over. Right. He just it was I'm on the base. I'm here. Yeah. I mean, it's bad. It was bad. And so Babe Dahlgren was the man who replaced Lou Gehrig in the lineup that day in 1939 in Detroit. But he stayed, well, I mean, he stayed with the team. I know in the 39 World Series, he was in uniform, and that's where he met Frank Sinatra. There's a picture of a young Frank Sinatra getting Lou Gehrig's autograph at Crosley Field in Cincinnati. And, like, they're all smiling, and Gehrig looks like he's laughing, smiling. 
Anyway, but uh, it's an interesting photo if you ever Wally see Pitt it. Wally Pitt was at the game also walking. Wow, Wally Pitt was at the game? How crazy is that? <laughs> wow. But then July 4th, Yankees have the Lou Gehrig Day, and he gives off the speech. Two weeks, you've been reading about a bad rag. Today, I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. When you look around, wouldn't you consider it privilege to associate yourself with such a fine-looking man as a standing in uniform in this ballpark today? That I might have been given a bad break, but I've got an awful lot to live for. Thank you. You know, he gets a bunch of trophies. Like it, like at the bot at his feet, there's a bunch of trophies that various people gave him. And there was a trophy that the New York Giants, of all people, the baseball team, gave him a trophy for I guess his service to baseball. And he mentions it in the speech, like, man, when the New York Giants give you a trophy, that's something, or something along those lines. And of course, you know, the memorable words that everybody remembers in that speech. Today, I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. Because, and he was, you know, driven to tears. Like, you know, he was very emotional that day because he knew he couldn't play anymore because of this terrible disease, you know. But all those fans were there supporting him because he gave 100% to the New York Yankees. He was a main reason for the rise of the New York Yankees' dominance in the 20s and the 30s and, and today. I'm literally looking at a picture right now of Babe Ruth in a suit giving yep. him a hug right after um, he gave the speech. Yes, Babe Ruth was there, and I think members of the 27 Yankees were there too. I know other, other teammates were there. They were all there to support Garrick, and it was a very emotional day. You know, coming to the realization that this guy, you know, his career is over and he can't play anymore. You know. So his his Yankee teammates gave him a trophy. His Yankee teams gave him a trophy. And the this is really heavy when they sell him that trophy. We've been to the wars together. We took our photos as they came. And always you were the leader, and ever you played the game. Idol of cheering millions, records are yours by sheaves. Iron of frame, they held you, decked with your laurel leaves. But higher than that we hold you, we know, we who have known you best. Knowing the way you came through, every human test. Let this be a silent token of lasting friendship's gleam. And all that we've left unspoken, your pals, the Yankees team. Beautiful. Heck of a poem. Heck of a poem, man. And, um, and um, that's on display at the museum. Yes. That along with the Giants trophy, they're, they're on display at the Baseball Hall of Fame. And yeah, and then Lou Gehrig, well, he passes away in 1941, June 2nd, a few days before his birthday. I mean, he was only 37. I mean, that's, that's young, man. But you know what? I mean, I, his, his, it's very sad that he had ALS, which is now Lou Gehrig's disease, but, you know, I guess having his name on the disease 
It's an awareness thing. It's an awareness thing. And of course, you know, Pete Freights with the the ice bucket challenge back in 2014. I love Peter Freights. He was a heck of a baseball player for Boston College back in the day. Yeah, you know, I mean, this just, and I think. Had he not got that, he could be a guy we'd be watching right now. Yeah, and I'm sure Major League Baseball has done something with ALS. Mm-hmm. You know, it. And their stand up to cancer thing and all of that. Baseball is very on top of. Yeah. They're good with that. And just, and of course, Lou Gehrig was also elected to the Hall of Fame in 1939. I don't think he was, I'm not sure if he was there at the, the grand opening, but they elected him in the Hall of Fame. Like the he did, class? Inaugural class was 36, and then 37, 38. He was, I guess he was part of the inaugural classes of the Hall of Fame, 36 or 39, but, you know. That was me asking you the question. Yeah. But, um, you know, Gehrig gets, he got elected because. He he was like Clemente, like they the sports writers were like we're not we're not gonna wait to elect you. You're getting in right now. <laughs> Your Hall of Fame has no clout unless this guy's in there. Right, exactly. And he at 39, we all knew they, they all knew he was done playing, so it was like all right, you're getting in. And even at the Hall of Fame, there is a statue of Lou Gehrig along with alongside Jackie Robinson and Roberto Clemente, for like I I'm gonna look. What, why it's there, but I think for like leadership or something like that, you know, there, there's leadership, humanitarianism, right. all of that kind of stuff. Yeah, you could, you guys can look it up, and I wish I knew more about it, even though since I've interned at the Hall of Fame, but I don't really know much more about why they're. Well, I feel like the Hall of Fame is a uh, immersive place, and you can't learn everything about everything when you're there, but you're there a year. Right. Yeah. yeah. There's too much information <laughs> to get through your head about the Hall of Fame, but. If you ever go to Cooperstown, the first thing you see, one of the first things you see as you walk through the entrance is that statue of Gary and Clemente and Robinson. So I can't wait to get there one day. Yeah, I I highly recommend it. You know I love it. Yeah, and I'm I'm totally being biased. I highly recommend it. All right, so I think allowed to be biased. Yeah, so I think I think that's enough about uh, Mr. Gehrig. Yeah, so we're gonna follow it back up into uh, Cal Rifkin. Yep, Cal Rifkin Jr. Junior, yes. Yes, Junior. because his dad... And his nickname, the Iron Man. Yep, and he was born in 1960 in... I, I'm going to get this name wrong. Have the Grace, Maryland, which is close to the border of Maryland and Pennsylvania, I think. It's, it's not that close to Baltimore, but, you know... But you he, notice a lot of these Hall of Famers tend to do their entire career with the same team? A good number of them, yes. Not all of them, but a good number. Right. Because he was with the Orioles for um, 21 years, from 81 to 2001. Yep. I'll never forget the All-Star game. Um, 2001 All-Star game? 2001 All-Star game where uh, A-Rod's like, no, you go play shortstop. Yeah. I'm going to play third. And then and, and Jeter, not Jeter, I'm sorry. And then Rifkin's looking at the dugout, and Joe Torrey's like, yeah, go shortstop, go shortstop. You know, I'll never forget that. Never, it's a great moment, man. And then, so... Or the red, or the red Corvette, which we're going to get to here in a minute. Yes. But <laughs> now, Cal's dad, Cal Ripken Sr., played in the minor leagues, I think, for the Orioles. Like he, the, the Ripken family was from Maryland. Um, Cal Sr. He, um, he played in the minor leagues for um, the Orioles. They signed him in '57. For $150 a month, he didn't have a pen. He had to borrow one from a fan in the stands. And he, <laughs> he did 36 years in the organization after that. 
It started as a catcher for the Phoenix Stars in Class C, Arizona Mexico League, um, playing under Bob Hooper. And the next year, he was promoted to the Wilson Tobbs in the Class B Carolina League. He played 118 games. And then in 59, he split season between the Pensacola Dons and the Alabama Florida League, yeah. which I'm assuming is the Pensacola Blue Wahoos. But, um, yeah. So probably the same level of ball. Yeah. And, um, and then the Amarillo Gold Sox in the Texas League. And most of his time, he had played 61 games in Pensacola and only appeared in 30 in Amarillo. Mm-hmm. Um, and he spent 60 in the Illinois and Iowa League, which I'm – yeah, that's, I'm assuming that's, you know, the Midwest League. I forget what it's called now. They keep changing the names of these. Triple A Midwest. But, uh, well, it was Class B, so it's Double A. But I, Major League Baseball has changed the name of all these leagues the last couple of years to what they are. and It's awful. Anyway, I mean, but that's another subject for another time. But so. he was a 300 hitter in the minors and, you know. Yeah. Oh, there's a story on Wikipedia. So Earl Weaver who later became the Orioles manager, was minor, was a manager of the Fox Cities team that Ripken was on. Fox City Foxes. And uh, he rec- Weaver recalled, you know, Cal was hitting over 300 until our team bus driver quit, and Cal started doing his job too. The 15-hour bus trips were strenuous work, but Rip always was hard as nails, toughness personified. Imagine your shortstop driving the bus. And honestly, Cal Sr. Cal looked like a tough dude. Like, just, oh, he looks like a hard ass. Yeah, just look at you. Know, you look at pictures of him. He looks like a hard ass. He just, he looked like a tough guy. I wish I could find that Billy Ripken F face baseball card. <laughs> oh man, yeah, that's a crazy one. But anyway, so you know, in '61, Cal Sr. suffered an injury after several foul tips went off his shoulder. Uh, it's stuff. You know, it, the initial registries didn't show anything, but. He discovered that he dislocated his shoulder. He dislocated his, had a dislocated his shoulder and a trophied deltoid muscle and a tendon problem. He continued to play, but the injury was just, you know, it would take years to recover from. And Cal Jr. said, you know, practically speaking, if my father wanted to stay in the game, he'd have to shift his sights from playing to coaching and managing. And then he played for three teams of 61, Leesburg, Orioles, Played for Little Rock Travelers of the Southern Association, which was their last. That was the last year of the Southern Association, and then the Red Wings, George Red Wings of the uh, International League. And then, but like you know, he kept playing, but it, it, the injury was just getting crazy. You know, it, it robbed his ability to throw well. And he appeared in 58 games with the Appleton Foxes in '62, and he made some appearances in '64, and that was it. And then he got into Miley managing in the. Orioles organization. He stayed with the Orioles. You know, he's a Maryland guy. Orioles is a Maryland team. You know, and he just... Well, he started in 63 in Leesburg, Florida in the Florida State League. Wait, hold on. It started, actually started in 61 when he was still playing, but he was still fighting through that pain. You know, the Billy DeMars, the original... Uh, manager for Leesburg was promoted in June and so he got to you know manage some before they folded before the team folded after the season and then he became full time manager of the Fox of the Fox Cities Foxes and from 63 to 74 he managed Fox Cities 
Aberdeen, which was where he was born, and that's where the Ripkins have their minor league team, the Aberdeen Ironbirds, the Ripken family. Uh, Miami Marlins, you know, of the – I think they were the National League then, or maybe it was Florida State League. The, not the minor league, minor league, the minor league Miami Marlins, not the major league team. We're not talking about them. The Elmira Pioneers in Elmira, New York. Rochester. Get that. Get out of here, Derek Jeter. <laughs> the Rochester Red Wings from '69 to '70, and I own a book about the Rochester Red Wings history, and it mentions Ripken in the book. You know, uh, the Dallas Fort Worth Spurs and the Asheville Orioles in Asheville, North Carolina, which, you know, I have. I also have a book about Asheville baseball history called Baseball in Asheville, and it's just a picture book. And there's pictures of Ripken as a manager of the Orioles with the team and all that. And he, I mean, he was very instrumental in developing players to go to the Orioles because this is when the Orioles were a very good team. The six, late 60s to like the early 80s, the Orioles were a dominant baseball team. And, you know, Earl Weaver, great manager, and they had great players. But Ripken was very – Cal Ripken Sr. was very instrumental in helping these players get to the big leagues, like Eddie Murray and Jim Palmer, you know, the Hall of Fame guys. Now let's get into Cal. Um, yeah. So Cal – sorry about that. <laughs> no, it's all good. So, uh, he got drafted in the second round in 78 mm-hmm. out of Aberdeen High School in Aberdeen, Maryland. Yep. And he – been a very short period of time in the minors. He got he made his debut on August tenth, nineteen eighty one, at the age of five days before his twenty first birthday. Yep. Um, and also in eighty one, when he was with Rochester, that was the year that Rochester Red Wings and the Pawtucket Red Sox, the day before Easter, I think it was April eighteenth, nineteen eighty one, they played the longest professional game. In history, in baseball history. Still? Yeah, 33 innings. Yeah, I'm good. Yeah. And I'm good. What did they do? Change uniforms and play the next day? Like They stopped it. Oh, they originally stopped it after the 32nd inning. And then they continued it later in June, and it went to 33 innings. It was bad. I mean, there's a book about it. I forgot. I think it's called 33 Innings or something like that. That sounds... Miserable. It was but very really fun. It was very miserable. Cal, I think, only had like two hits. Wade Boggs played for the Pawtucket Red so Sox. So he went two for seventeen, uh, somewhere around there, <laughs> no, two for like, eleven. You know, something like that. Come on. Yeah, um, and it was just a very long game. And if you're want to read more about, it, there's a book called Thirty Three Innings. I own it and I've read it. It's a good book. Actually, sounds amazing. Yeah, it goes in detail about all the players who have played on the, who played on both teams, including Cal, and of course Wade Boggs played for Pawtucket. It's a very interesting book. So he was a part of that. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. But getting back to Cal, I can't think of anybody else who was a 19-year consecutive All-Star, 83 to 2001. I'm not sure I can think of anybody else. I can't think of anybody. And I remember him being a child. He won his he won a World Series like young in '83, back when the Orioles were decent. Right. Yep. '83. Him and two-time AL MVP '83 91. AL Rookie of the Year in 82, so his second year he won a ring and got that one out of the way. Yeah. Two-time Gold Glove, 91-92. Eight-time Silver Slugger, 83, 84, 85, 86, 89, 91, 93, 94. So you know man swinging the stick, even though he had a, uh, what was his average, 276? Yeah. 
but he hit 400. He had 3,000 hits. 3,184. 31 and 431 home runs. Guy had power. He could hit for power and average. You know, you know, and he was a shortstop, right? I love his RBI number. Almost 1,700. 17, almost 1,700. Right? This guy was like a shortstop and a third baseman, and he hit 400-plus home runs. You know, you don't think of a lot of shortstops having that power, you know. His, and he's one of those guys, um, he grew up in a locker room. Mm-hmm. So he grew up around the game. So that's got to be a benefit. Because I mean, his dad, we were talking about a minute ago. He was a bat boy for a good number of teams. For yeah. his dad's minor league he's teams. Following his, he's following his dad around. Right. He wanted to be just like his dad and play baseball. And he did. I think he went up his dad. Well, yeah, he went up his dad because he played in the major leagues. His dad never did. And, of course, his brother Billy Ripken also played in the major leagues for the Orioles. And he's an F face if you've seen the baseball card. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah. um, and they and in eighty, and I love what they did. Yeah, I'm fast forwarding. It's like I love what they do with the Ripken baseball and all of that. That's awesome. Yeah, Ripken ba- the Ripken leagues. You know, people are talking about going to change it from little league to that in certain towns. Like I love it. Yeah, I know. Briefly, Huntsville had a Ripken league thing going on, but I don't think it lasted. It didn't. It was at John Hunt Park and all that. But they had it down at uh, Patriot Rockwood. Oh, that too. Yeah, but it didn't last. Um. Let's get into his playing career here um, with the Orioles. Um, they were planning to keep him in Rochester through 81, but they needed some help at the uh, All-Star break, trade deadline kind of stuff. So they called him up in August, and Earl Weaver planned to have him take over the role of a utility infielder for a guy named Wayne Krinchiki. and because he had gotten sent down to make room and. um it came up on August 10th of 81 as a pinch runner for Ken Singleton in the 12th inning. And he scored on a hit by a guy named Joe Lowenstein, giving the Orioles a win. His, and then his first hit came six days later against a guy named Dennis Lapp of the White Sox. And he finished the season batting 182 without an extra base hit. And they finished fourth in the division, you know, so nothing special. No. Um, but the next year, he was, after spring training, he became the uh, starter in 82. On third base, when the team traded a guy named uh, DeCensis, it doesn't say his first name anywhere. Oh, I think it's Gene DeCensis. I know, I know exactly what you're talking about. But and his first at bat, no, was, Doug, uh, Doug DeCensis. Okay, it. yeah. And his first at bat of the first game of the season, he hit a dinger off of uh, Dennis Leonard of, K- of KC. Um, hit three hits that day, but he still was slumping. His average was 118. And, you know, he is looking for advice, looking for advice. And Reggie Jackson said, just know what you know you can do, not what everybody else tells you to do. Mm-hmm. And after that, it just clicked, you know. So basically, Reggie told him, play the game. Yeah. Just play the game. Just play the don't game. worry about all this outside noise. Yeah. In the words of Nick Saban, don't listen to the rat poison. <laughs> you know, just play the game. Yeah. And, um... And uh, he was wrestling. And uh, on May 29th of '82, there was a doubleheader. Ripken didn't play the second game, and that was the last time that he missed a baseball game until 1998. Yep. And that's that's also um, July of that year, so he became a shortstop, not a third baseman. Because um, Earl Weaver decided it was harder to find a shortstop who could hit than it was to find a third baseman who could hit. Yeah. 
So, and words of Weaver, you never know. Rip might be a great shortstop. I, th- I think he, I think he, I think he was. Yeah, I think so too. I had to guess so. By far, yeah. He's got a certain plaque somewhere in New York that says that I think he's a great shortstop. Yep. <laughs> yep, I can verify and, that. And um, he won the A Rookie of the Year that year. They lost to the Brewers in the final day of the season and missed the playoffs by a half game. But Yep. And then eighty three, that's the, the year that he played his first all star game. First of nineteen all star games. And that's when they won the World Series against nineteen the consecutive, not just nineteen. Nineteen, 19 consecutive. consecutive, yeah. And that was the year the Orioles won their last World Series in nineteen eighty three. I love what his roommate Rick Dempsey said. Certainly there were pitchers who faced him in 82 and made or tried to make adjustments against him. But Cal was determined and worked hard to offset their adjustments. Yep. Because there's, um, there's a quote that's in Oral, Oral Hart Tragedy's book. Pitching is timing, hitting is disrupting timing. Mm-hmm. And it seemed like this man was very good about that. Oh, yeah, for sure. And then the 83 was the year that he won AL MVP. And he hit 318 with 27 home runs. And he led the league in fielding percentage with 970, 534 assists, and 111 double plays. Oh, it's a hefty number. And he led the major leagues in hits and doubles. He had 211, wait, hold on. 211 hits, um, 47 doubles, and 121 runs scored. So he was on fire that year. That was his coming out year. That's when people were like, who's this Ripken kid? And now... In eighty, so in eighty three, the Orioles they beat the White Sox in the playoffs, which were managed by Tony Larusa, who is the current White Sox manager. You know, Larusa was managing the Sox at the time again, and then they beat the Phillies four games to one in the World Series. And now Ripken, he only hit like this was his only World Series he played in, and he only hit like one sixty seven with an RBI, no home runs. But he made a number of key plays defensively at shortstop, including the final out of the series on a Gary Maddox lineout in Game 5. So, offensively, he didn't contribute much. But defensively, he was there. He made good plays. He, he helped the team win the World Series. Unfortunately, that is the last World Series the Orioles have won. <laughs> I don't see one in their near future either. No. Sorry, Melanie Newman. I think I could go manage them about as good as... But you ain't got the tools to manage. Right. But, you know, I mean. I can manage digging a hole in my backyard. About what, because you have the tools. But they got to have the, they got to have the, they got to do something with their farm system. Oh, it's trash, bro. <laughs> anyway, so. Here's something I like about this, the Kadak Ripken. Yeah. 1984, he signed a four-year contract. One million dollars a year. Mm-hmm. The largest contract that the Orioles have ever given out. Do you think anybody that's played more than two or three years and has passed by rookie contract is signing for $1 million these days? No. Absolutely not. It's just wild they're how gonna that sign, Yeah, they're going to sign for more. Um, he did very well in 84. He set the American League record that year with 583 assists. I guess as a shortstop. Or, yeah, just throw yeah, the that, assist. Throw it. 
Right. Somebody catches it, you get the out. Even on a double play, you get an assist at second. If you throw it to first, you get an assist. For yeah. those of y'all at home that don't understand the statistics. Yeah. Now, in 85... He this, about blew the streak. Right. Against the Rangers, in the, the Texas Rangers, in the second game of the season, he sprained his ankle on a fielding play. He finished the game, but afterward, Dr. Charles Silverstein ordered him to rest for 24 hours. However, the Orioles had an off day after that game, and Ripken was back for the next game. Well, that, how convenient is that? And, and that was um, the same with Garrick. There was a couple times where it was, well, we shouldn't be, but we got this opportunity where we can. I love it. Yeah. If they did not have an airplane day. <sighs> and so, so 85, they changed, the Orioles changed between managers. So Joe Altabelli. He replaced Weaver in 83, and he led them to the World Series. Altabelli gets fired, you know, and then Cal Sr. managed for one game, and then they rehired Earl Weaver. They got Earl Weaver to come out of retirement to help them out. And then, let's see, next year, 86, he had a hitting, he had a 17-game, Ripken had a 17-game hitting streak. And... You the know. first time the Orioles had finished last since they'd been in Baltimore. Right, and that from fifty, you know, from fifty-four onwards, that was the first time, and certainly would not be the last. Unfortunately, hashtag the last few years. Yeah, and so you know, it, after eighty-six, Earl Weaver retires again, and this is the best part. Eighty-seven, Cal Ripken Sr. replaced Earl Weaver as manager of the Baltimore Orioles. So Cal. Gets to play for his dad. Can I backtrack you for just one second? Yes. Right before the All-Star break, Earl Weaver, they were so bad in 86. He says, do you know the kid, talking about Ripken, Mm -hmm. do you know the kid hasn't missed an infield practice all year, and now he's going to the All-Star game? The kind of coach I want to play for. This guy's doing the work. Why aren't you doing the work? Why is he doing this, and why is he doing that? Bunch of lazy f words is what he's pretty much calling those kids. Yeah, because yeah. Earl, we- Earl Weaver could cuss. Earl Weaver could cuss. Yeah, but they're gonna <laughs> put that quote on right. stuff we're reading. Right, we're not gonna go there. Um, so Ripken Senior becomes the manager in '87, right? In '87, right? And you know, in July 11th that year, Ripken Senior became the first manager to write two of his sons into the lineup card when both Cal and his brother Billy played in the same game. I mean, that's just, you know, you, as a father, you reached heaven if you put two of your sons in the lineup. I'd have penciled myself in. Yeah. <laughs> back to back to back. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, that was just wonderful, man. I mean, that's a, you know, if I was a dad and I did that, that would make, that would be very proud. You know. Uh... So later in the season, on September 14th, Ripken Sr. decided to take Ripken Jr. out of a game in a blowout loss to the Toronto Blue Jays at Exhibition Stadium. Ron Washington, who is the Braves, currently the Braves' third base coach. He's the Braves' wagon wheel right now. Yeah, he's the wagon wheel. He's going to need soldier surgery after this playoffs. Right, he's the Braves' Huey Jennings. Uh, what was where was I saying? I'm sorry. Ron Washington replaced him in the eighth inning, ending Ripken's streak of 8,243 consecutive innings played. 
Reagan Sr. called the streak a burden after the game, saying, I had to do it sometime. But you know what? Consecutive inning streaks have not always been recorded, but Ripkins remains unchallenged by historians. Like That's a lot no, of innings. Yeah, the, the historians are not going to go there. They're That's like, a lot of innings. Uh, yeah, we'll do games, but innings, uh, you know, we're not going there. But still, you know. And then 88 was the was when the Orioles started the season 0 for 21, and poor Cal Sr. gets fired after six straight losses. You know, the first six losses of the season, and it gets replaced by former Oriole player and future and Hall of Famer Frank Robinson. But he, you know, they were... And then they lost 15 more. Right, and this is basically a taste of, you know, the Orioles just being or, being bad Orioles. They're just not very good. Um, they wound up finishing that year 264. Um, he led the Major League shortstop to 23 diggers and 81 RBIs. And he had a big time play in the All-Star game where he made that catch in the throw to get Will Clark. Yep. Um, and it was noted as the gem of the evening by um, Ken Rosenthal, who is somehow still a sports writer, even though that was, what, 35 years ago now. He hasn't, he hasn't found the need to retire, so good for him. I know it. I said, well, that lengthy career, good for Ken. Yeah. Let's see. Uh, in, uh, in 88, he signed a three-year contract with an option for a fourth. Um, and, and he obviously played every game that season. Yeah, and we pre- all know where this is going. But. Yeah, and it prevented the signing the contract prevented him from being a free agent as he's in, which would have killed the streak. Right, he's going to be an Oriole for life, man. At this point, he's already yeah, six, seven seasons in. He's going to be an Oriole. You know, he, he doesn't want to play for anybody else but the Orioles. August second, nineteen eighty nine, his brother combined for seven hits against the Boston Red Sox with Cal Junior providing the game winning hit late in the game, and that was American League record hits for Bright Brothers. The Major League record is held by, who else? Lloyd and Paul Wayner, who had eight hits on June 25th, 1932. I love how it keeps coming full circle. I'm telling you, man, we're going back. And then 15 days later, Ripken passed Steve Garvey by playing his 1,208th straight game, moving him to third all-time behind uh, Everett Scott and Lou Gehrig. Lou Gehrig and Everett Scott. Uh, let's see. I'm not sure that I like what Ray Robinson from the New York Times said when that happened. What did he say? Because uh, it said, despite this accomplishment, Ray Robinson of the New York Times wrote, few regarded Ripken or anyone else as a successor of the Iron Horse. You know, like, that's kind of a backhanded slight. Like, this guy's probably going to do it, but nobody should ever do it. Right. Like, Some people just don't want to see records fall, man. It's understandable, but... And this is a question I had coming into this. Do you think this would even be possible in modern-day baseball with the way the modern DL works, with the little 10-gay DL, and... Absolutely not. I I think... I I get out of bed and step wrong, and I'm going to DL for eight, you know? I don't even know who currently has the active most uh, most, uh, games played streak. I don't have no idea. I will have that answer before we're done with this podcast. All right, because honestly... With the day's game, with all the the ten day DL, you know, well they don't call the disabled list anymore. It's the IL. It's like the injured reserve. Injured reserve. Yeah. yeah. 
because I guess disabled is politically incorrect now. But anyway, you know, everybody knows what we're talking about. So with the 10 day injured reserve and all this stuff, that would I never just, happen today I, for I, either one of those guys, right? I just don't see it happen. I mean, sure, you can play all 162 games in a season. People have done that. They can still do that. But I just don't see it getting even close to uh, either Ripken or Gehrig. So, Cal Ripken Jr. last year, April 11th, 2010, Whit Merrifield was the leader with 272. 247, 247. 247. Entering the postseason last year, and Cal Ripken gave him advice. He said, because of the 24 people are talking about my streak a lot lately, but I did notice you have a longest streak in MLB right now at 247. I'd like to tell you it gets a heck of a lot, a heck of a lot easier after 300. <laughs> yeah. What was what, what what year was that? That was last, last year? Last year, entering the playoffs. Okay, nice. Um, but I'm sure he's not the current leader. Yeah, I mean... I just don't, you know. At this point, I don't think anybody can do it. Oh, nobody will. The games has changed too much. Way too much, thanks to Manfred or other people. I'm not even going to blame the commission. I'm just going to blame the rules committee. Yeah. I mean, you know. They don't. Yeah. So, anyway. So, back to Cal. He had a rough year in 1990. He hit 209 through his first, uh, hit 209 through his first 69 games. Yeet. Well, Starting with the Mendoza line, but he had a gold glove. He made up for it with his bet with his glove. And on June 12th, he broke Mark Bellinger's Baltimore record for the most consecutive, most consecutive errorless chances by a shortstop. 67 straight games without an error. Wow. And um, official scorer Bill Stickett decided the error was really somebody else's fault and changed the call after that. So they continued it for 95 <laughs> okay. Talk about a hometown scorekeeper. So you know how Paul Wayner was back in 42 was like, hey, Eddie Juice messed up that play. Don't count that as a hit. Count that as an error. <laughs> <laughs> that just happened in this. That just happened in this previous Brave series. There was a play out uh, out when they were at the Dodgers. Yeah. Overnight, the scorekeeper said, "I changed my mind." Right. You know, uh, a little hometown scoring. That wasn't an error. Yeah. That was a hit. Ripken, you know, <laughs> the score. Ripken's like, you know what? That was really my Devereaux's fault. That's his error. Oh my god. It's it's kind of similar to the Paul Wayner thing, man. <laughs> Hey, right now. I'm going to give you one do-over. Right. You know, I'm, I'm being lenient. I, you know, independent scorekeepers or, you know, hometown scorekeepers or something else, man. Anyway, uh, he continued straight to 95 games, breaking the major league record for shortstops and setting the American League record for infielders other than third baseman. And then on June 12th, he passed Everett Scott to move into second place. Of all time. It happened at Memorial Stadium, but the fans booed him that day because of his offensive slump. Nobody cares if you can feel the ground ball. They want you to hit dingers. Right. They just don't care. I mean, like, hitting gets people in the seats. Fielding's great. We've mentioned this before on this podcast. Chicks dig the long ball. Absolutely. I'm pretty sure Patrick and Matt do also. Yes. <laughs> and anyway, he really catches his, catches his stride in the early 90s. 91, um, up to the All-Star break, he was hitting almost 350-348, making him the first shortstop to be the league in average at that point since Lou Boudreau in 47. 
Yeah. And um, he finished that. He finished uh, nine and one, hitting three twenty three, with thirty four dingers and one hundred and fourteen RBIs. He also hit forty six doubles and stole six bases, which is his career high. Yeah. So he was never fleet of foot. So that. But he could play the spot. Yeah. And so that was the year that the Orioles played their last series, the last time the Orioles played at Memorial Stadium, which saw a lot of history from Orioles as well as the Baltimore Colts. And that year, Queen Elizabeth II saw a baseball game at Memorial Stadium with President at the time, George H.W. Bush and Barbara, and of course Prince Philip was there too. And so before the game, they go into the dugout. I think it's the Orioles dugout. And both and all, all the players and coaches of the Oakland A's, who the Orioles were playing as well as the Orioles, got to go down the line through the dugout and shake the Queen's hand. And Tony La Russa was the first person to shake her hand. Why does Tony La Russa keep coming up? Well, how, he, how is he so cyclical in baseball? He managed, I mean, he was the manager of the A's at the time, you know, when the A's were great. He uh, just keeps coming up in our conversations, though. I love it. He's, I love Tony, though. But. Yeah. I'm trying to find, like, Cal's quote. But, like, Billy Ripken met her, and all he said was, I just said, it's nice to meet you. It said of his fleeting brush of royalty, and he had a slightly more in-depth conversation with Mr. Bush. So I'm not really sure what what Ripken, what Cal Ripken Jr. said to her, but Billy was like, yeah, nice to meet you. <laughs> but, so the Queen Elizabeth if got I to see... If I was Cal, I'd be like, get out of my way. I got a streak I'm trying to maintain. Yeah, so that's something <laughs> really cool that he got to meet the Queen of England. That was probably, I think, her first and maybe only baseball game she's been to. She's seen plenty of rounders games. Yes, plenty of rounders, but baseball, this was her first. <laughs> so that was cool. He got to meet the Queen of England. That's also the same year he became the first shortstop to hit 30 dingers and 200 hits, as well as 30 home runs and 40 doubles. First shortstop in history to do it, and that was the same year. Wow. And so 92 rolls around, and this is where the Orioles play first play at Camden Yards. This is a big-time contract year for the, for the uh, Ironman also. Yeah. And this is like the beginning of a renaissance of building newer baseball stadiums that don't that aren't the cookie-cutter types that help both baseball and football teams. This was the renaissance, and Camden Yard started it. So, Yeah, Ripken struggled in 92, and um, he, had a, he had a quote after the year, and he said, I don't like to make excuses for the fact that I wasn't hitting, but I was distracted. I just felt like the Orioles were playing mind games with me, because it's a contract year. Yeah. Uh, he continued to say, um, whether that was right or wrong, it was bothering me. And then, at in August, after that, towards the end of that year, he um, signed a five-year, $30.5 million contract, which was huge in 1992. Yeah. <laughs> There's good ball players today, or mediocre ball players today, to get that money. Right. For three years. For three years. Not five. Right, I mean. Oh, two years. Two years. <laughs> a year. Yeah. Um, but he, he kept slumping, and he was getting booed by Orioles fans throughout the 92 season and it, that's not fair Orioles fans sound like Phillies fans he finished the season with a 251 average 14 career lows across all three categories I'm about to tell y'all 251 yeah. average 14 homers 72 ribbies 
I wonder if the new stadium had something to do with that. Maybe he just wasn't used to playing Camden Yards compared to Memorial Stadium. Maybe the air flowed different? Probably. I, I mean, Camden yeah. Yards is like close to the bay compared to Memorial Stadium. So. But regardless of his poor batting statistics, he did win another gold glove that year. Yeah. I mean, defense saved his butt many a time. When the offense was lagging, his defense was top notch. He was also a member of the Olympic torque relay to uh, Salt Lake. He was the 96th person to touch the torch. Random fact. Oh, the 92 Winter Olympics? Uh, 2002. Oh, 2002 Winter Olympics. Okay. Yeah. I mean, um, it was also the first year that he was the only Ripken in the Orioles in organization. Wow. Since, you know, yeah. him and his dad, this is how it started. Yeah. Um, because the Orioles had bumped his dad as a coach and traded Billy f face Billy to the uh, to the Rangers. He played for the Rangers. Oh wow! And ninety three didn't start no better, but he managed to, you know, overcome. And he's still playing those games. He's still he's still in the lineup. Doesn't matter what he's hitting, he's in there. And then in nineteen ninety four, the Elias Sports Bureau informed the. Um, Baltimore Orioles. The Ripken had surpassed Ernie Banks for most career home runs with a shortstop at 278 off of Scott Erickson. Nice. Banks met Ripken in a ceremony on February 9th and said, I'm extremely happy that he broke this record because it gave me a chance to come back and be remembered too. <laughs> <laughs> um, like Ernie Banks is in the Hall of Fame. <laughs> Who's going to forget about Ernie Banks? Was he in the Hall of Fame then? Yeah, he was elected in 77. Oh, okay. Yeah. But he'd been there so long people kind of so I guess that's the angle yeah, he was and playing. the Cubs like worked very good when he was playing. You know, then, anyway, so but in uh, we're getting to ninety five. Ninety five is the pivotal year. Or you, did you have any more? Oh well, ninety four was the strike, the short, the strike shortened season. So yeah, we're gonna. He uh, hit two sixty two and I five seventy nine with ARBIs, but did. Uh, That's the year he beat the record. It is 95. He was hitting 262. He hit 17 dingers, 80 RBIs. But his season highlight came on September 6th when many baseball fans within and outside of the U.S. turned on to ESPN to watch him surpass Lou Gehrig's 56-year-old record for consecutive games played. 2,130. I'll never forget the numbers on the side of the rail yard at Camden Yards. Yeah, the, the B&O warehouse. Yeah, Baltimore, Baltimore, Ohio warehouse. Uh, just uh, I know, I know, the, it unfurled from thirty to thirty-one in the end. Yeah, and there's balloons and confetti, and it's riding around the field in the red Corvette, shaking hands with the fans. Yep, it was just, and then like walking, and then after that, walking around the field and shaking. Twenty-two hands. minute delay after his first at bat. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you know. And uh, they played the California Angels. That's what the Angels were called back then. Both Bill Clinton and Al Gore were there also. Yes. It's very rare to have both in the same venue. Could, but they were. But Washington, D.C. was close to, it's close to Baltimore, so it made sense. But it's still very rare to have both, both the president them. and the vice president in case stuff goes haywire. And not only that, Joe DiMaggio was there too as a t- because he was a teammate of Garrick's and he was still alive then. He was like 80. But he was there too and the game was on ESPN and to this day 
it still ranks as one of the network's most watched baseball games. You know. Uh, you know, Cal's children, Rachel and Ryan, threw out the first pitch. You know, uh, Clinton was with the commentators for, on ESPN for the Orioles' half of the fourth inning and called Ripken's fourth inning home run. He hit a home run in the game, and Bill Clinton called it. How cool is that, man? You know, the President of the United States is calling your game. I'm going to try and find that audio and insert it right here. But if I can, I apologize. Yeah. But, and, uh, um, you know, and it reminds me of, like, you know, Ronald Reagan calling Bo Jackson's 1989 All-Star Game home run in Anaheim. But he was gone by then. You know, he wasn't president at that time, but still was pretty cool. And, like, you know, it, it's just, it was a magical night. Ripken gave a phenomenal speech paying homage to Lou Gehrig as well. He basically says, Tonight I stand here overwhelmed as my name is linked with the great and courageous Lou Gehrig. I'm truly humbled to have our names spoken in the same breath. This year has been unbelievable. I've been cheered in ballparks all over the country. People not only showed me their kindness, but more importantly, they demonstrated their love of the game of baseball. I give my thanks to baseball fans everywhere. Tonight, I want to make sure you know how I feel. As I grew up here, I not only had dreams of being a big league ball player, but also of being a Baltimore Oriole. For all your support over the years, I want to thank you, the fans of Baltimore. From the bottom of my heart, this is the greatest place to play. You know? And just, and on the lap, his lap around the field, Bobby Bonilla and Rafael Romero pushed him into the field. Yeah. Said, if you don't do a lap, we ain't getting this game going again. Right. And I thought it was a ridiculous sort of thing. But as I started to do it, the celebration of 50,000 started to be very one-on-one and very personal. I started seeing people I knew. Those were the people that had been around the ballpark all those years. And it was really a wonderful human experience. You know. He's very humble. Right. In all successes, he's a guy that's always been very humble. Yes. And he just keeps going. Yeah, he played another five years beyond that. Uh, he retired in 2001, correct? Yes, but the streak ended in 1998. On September 20th, before the final home game of the season against the Yankees, Ripken decided to end his streak at 2,632 games having surpassed Garrick's previous record by 502 games. Rookie third baseman Ryan Miner started in his place at first thinking it was a rookie prank. <laughs> Realizing that the streak was coming to an end, the fans, his teammates, and the visiting Yankees, with David Wells of the Yankees being the first to notice that Ripken was not playing in, during pranking practice, gave Ripken an ovation after the game's first out was recorded. Ripken later stated that he decided to end the streak at the end of the season to avoid any off-season controversy about his playing status and to end the streak entirely on his own terms while he still could. I would have had to boo him if I was at that game. <laughs> they don't boo nobody's, though. But then after that, he returned to the lineup for the final seven games of the season. You know, but still. So, I don't know. We, me and Matthew talked about this before the podcast. For some reason, I was thinking when he beat Lou Gehrig, he took the next day off. Not that I know. No, I mean he wanted to. Or I think that night he did it. He might have come out of the game after he did it. I don't. I don't remember. May, but for may. some reason, I'm thinking he took a day. That I don't. I, apparently, I'm wrong. Maybe it was a travel day after that. I don't know. 
But yeah, I mean, just you know, uh, he, Cal Ripken was like, "Hey, man," he was probably thinking, "Look, I passed the streak. I gotta keep this thing going, and when I decide it's it's time to do it, I'm gonna end it." Same thing with Lou Gehrig. Lou Gehrig, but of course, you know, Ripken's and Gehrig's situations were totally different. I mean, Lou, Ge- I mean, Ripken was not suffering from any disease at that point. You know, it. it like Garrick, like Garrick was. Oh, and then his brother is still on the MLB network, some semi regularly. Yeah, his brother's a host on there, and he shows up every now and then. It's right. still, I think, he'll go swing the stick a little bit. And I've seen Ripken at both twenty nine, Cal Ripken at both twenty nineteen and the twenty twenty one induction ceremonies. So I think he's a really nice guy. I'm sure he I is. I know you don't. I know you working up there. You're not able to. Rub elbows, but right. But just seeing the guy in person instead of on TV is great. So let's uh, wrap Ripken up, man. Um, he he owns the Aberdeen Ironbirds of the well. It was the New York Pin League, and now it's something that I don't know. I, don't, I can't keep up anymore. Um, <laughs> let's wrap him up real quick. Nineteen ninety nine, he had the highest batting average career at three forty. And that's even he, though even though he was injured at the beginning and the end of the season, and his father and former coach had passed away, just a few days before opening day. Yeah. He had 18 dingers and 332 at-bats, which was one every 18.4 at-bats, which is also career high. Yeah. He had the best individual game of his career going 6-for-6 six six with two homers off John Smoltz, tying a club record for 13 total bases against the Braves, which that's tough to do off Smoltzy. Yeah, for sure. Um, and then he hit his 400th home run of, the, of his career against Rolando Arrojo of the Tampa Bay Braves, Devil Rays back then. Mm-hmm. Um, his 99 season ended the injury when he was only nine hits away from joining the 3000 club, which he wound up getting against the Twins at the old Metrodome when he singled off Hector Carrasco. And he had a heck of a night at the plate that day. Three hits, the third of which was the 3000 hit. And he missed all July and August with a back injury, but he was still selected to the All-Star game, but sat out. And that was the first All-Star game he had missed since his rookie year. Wow. <laughs> in 83 games that year, he was 256. 256? With 15 dingers and 56 derbies. And in 2001, he announced he was going to retire. I'll never forget the All-Star game at Safeco Field. Mm-hmm. A-Rod made him come play shortstop. And I love this article. It says, un- it says unknowingly foreshadowing his own future going to third base. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, never forget that home run he hit that All-Star game into the bullpen. Yeah, at Safeco Field. Mm-hmm. Off of Chanho Park. Hey, well, he won the, won the MVP, and he's won four players in Major League Baseball history with multiple All-Star game MVP awards, 91, 2001, and the only player to be named All-Star MVP in two different decades. Wow. So the accolades just keep going for him. Yeah. And um, they plan to retire as number eight, right before 2001. It was supposed to be played at Yankee Stadium, but the September 11 attacks led to postponement. So they went out doing it in October. And he ended his career in the on-deck circle in the bottom of the ninth at Oriole Park. Mm-hmm. His longtime teammate, Brady Manderson, was also playing in the game for Orioles. Swung and missed him on fastball, hanging tight to end the game. And after the game, he gave a speech thanking the fans for his 20 season support. And um, he was only in 128 games in that year. Career low, 239, 14 home runs, 68 RBIs, and it was time to go. Yeah, it was time. He, he's big for charity work. He's big for youth baseball. Yep, Cal Ripken League. 
Um, there's a book. Even me now, I open this book every now and then. It's called Play Baseball the Ripken Way. Mm-hmm. If I'm not seeing a ball well, I open it and I'll hit, pull the hidden chapter and it's fundamentals. Yeah. To this day, I've had the book 20 years. Yeah. You know. That's a book you want to keep in your... Mm-hmm. Yeah, you pull on around, play baseball great, you play the ripping way. Yeah. Fundamentals. Fundamentals. Fundamentals, fundamentals, fundamentals. Yeah. And that's, you know, you play fundamentals and, you know, that'll get you... To, you can have a career in baseball. Whether it be college or pros, minor league, or major league, or going to play in Japan somewhere, you know. Shoot, you could be flipping waffles at Waffle House. There's a fundamental to it. There it's is. Fundamentals. There's fundamentals. Yes, sir. Well, I think that uh, kind of wraps up the uh, Rifkin and Garrick episode. That was a long one, man. <laughs> we're at an hour and a half right now. Yeah, we're gonna. Yeah, I mean that's. Um, our friend Ian suggested this one, so y'all can thank him for how long this was. Thank you, Ian. There's a lot of information in here. I'm glad you're listening. I miss playing ball with you. Um, <laughs> I just miss seeing you. <laughs> but as always, man, um, thank everybody for listening. Matthew and I enjoy doing this. Yeah. Um, you guys are awesome, man. You know. Everybody. Spotify. Apple. Apple. Google. Google. Oh, Stitcher. Stitcher, okay. Um, that's another one. Russell Weichel found us on. I can't remember what it's called. We're on a bunch of stuff. Just Google Baseball History 101. You'll be able to find it. Um, one, maybe one day we'll be able to do YouTube with it. Yeah, it just depends on where we are in life. You know, like if Patrick and I are both in different cities, we could... That'd be zoom. really easy with Zoom. Yeah, we could just Zoom it and we could end up on YouTube. We'll see. But as always, we thank y'all for listening. If you have a topic you'd like to hear... Baseball, H-I-S-101 at gmail.com. Yep. And if you uh, or we're on Facebook, Matthew Carter, Patrick DeVault. Yeah. Huntsville, Alabama. Yeah. You can find us. Or if you, if you see us, or if you see us out about in town, you know, if you want to talk to us about it and suggest something, that's fine too. I'm open for it, you know. I, of course, I, I, I don't know about Patrick, but I got like lots of ideas for topics, but. You probably have more than I do. Yeah, but it just depends on, you know, how much information and how interesting it can be. Of course, I find it interesting, but some people may not. But <laughs> well, the goal is the history, so we'll, right. we'll talk about these off air and we'll figure them yeah. out. But as always, thank you all for listening. Thank you very much. I'm Patrick, and this is Matthew Carter. And we will see you all next time. Bye. The Wiz Kids had won it, Bobby Thompson had done it, and Yogi read the comics all the while. Rock and roll was being born, marijuana we would scorn, so down on the corner the national pastime went on trial. We're talking baseball, Klazuski, Campanella, talking baseball, the man and Bobby Fella, the scooter, the barber and the nuke. They knew them all from Boston to Dubuque, especially Willie, Mickey, and the Duke. Well, Casey was winning, Hank Aaron was beginning, one Robbie going out, one coming in. Kiner and Midget Goodell, the Thumper and Mel Parnell, and 
And Ike was the only one winning down in Washington. I'm talking baseball. Klazuski, Campanella, talking baseball. The man and Bobby Feller, the scooter, the barber, and the duke. They knew them all from Boston to Dubuque, especially Willie, Mickey, and the Duke. Well, he swore he was the Oklahoma kid And Cookie played hooky to go and see the Duke And me, I always loved Willie Mays Those were the days Well, now it's the 80s And Brett is the greatest And Bobby Bonds can play for everyone Roses at the vet, Rusty again is a Met, and the great Alexander is pitching again in Washington. I'm talking baseball, like Reggie Cuisinberry, talking baseball, Carew and Gaylord Perry, Seaver, Garvey, Schmidt, and by the blue. If Cooperstown is calling, it's no fluke, they'll be with Willie, Mickey. 